Hello, and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about a town with an eerie history and still a burning coal mine beneath it, Centralia. Many people know Centralia as the town that inspired the Silent Hill video games and Pennsylvania's forbidden dangerous ghost town, but I wanted to explore why that is, the town's history, and how it all went wrong. And I have previously talked about this on my channel probably two or three years ago in a super brief three minute video that summarized the timeline of events that led to this never ending fire. But today I figured we'd dig a little deeper and expand and look at this strange town and see what we can actually uncover. So let's get into it. Centralia Valley was part of the vast wilderness of Northeastern Pennsylvania, much of which was sold by Native American tribes to Pennsylvania colonial agents in 1749 for 500 pounds. In 1770, Reading Railroad was built in the area linking Reading to Fort Augusta or present-day Sunbury, a frontier outpost. Most of the trail later became Route 61. It's likely that these builders saw evidence of the valley's anthracite coal riches as they hiked their way over Locust Mountain. A few years later, the eastern third of the valley was joined to Robert Morris's Wilderness Empire, a revolutionary war hero and signer of the Declaration of Independence. He didn't make any money from Centralia. However, he landed himself in debtor's prison a few years later, his hands passing to the Bank of the United States. Stephen Garrard, a former French sea captain turned banker on the other hand, heard about these coal rumors and spent $30,000 in 1830 to acquire the land at auction to see if it was true. One of his surveyors found the coal fortune and wrote, "'I have run lines where no human being has ever trod over mountains as steep, nay, steeper than the roof of any house, embodied in which must be immense quantities of coal. At one place in the vicinity of the first encampment, Mr. Allen had a vein open to ascertain the quality as well as the extent.'" The coal turned out to be of an excellent quality, the vein uncommonly extensive, running directly into a high mountain, apparently inexhaustible. Stevens' gamble had paid off massively. In 1832, a tavern was erected there because priorities, obviously, and it was named Bull's Head. The town was named after the tavern Bull's Head and the master architect of Centralia's coal rush, Alexander Rea, a mining engineer for the Locust Mountain Coal and Iron Company, moved there and drew up plans for a village. He decided to name the place Centerville, despite there actually being another Centerville already. So the post office told him, hey, you kind of can't do this, and he went with Centralia instead. I guess he was really focused on the center aspect to the name because he wanted the town to be a center of commerce. Anyway, two mines opened up in almost no time at all. The Locust Run and Coal Ridge, both in 1856. The Hazeldell Colliery followed in 1860 and Centralia in 1862, then the Continental in 1863, according to one source. In 1865, a branch line of the Lehigh Valley Railroad was constructed to Centralia. Called the Lehigh and Mahoney Railroad, it enabled transport and expansion of Centralia's coal sales to market in Eastern Pennsylvania. The same year when a post office was established, the town's name was changed from Centerville to Centralia because there was already a town named Centerville in Pennsylvania. The town was incorporated in 1866, at which time it was home to about 1300 residents. However, even as the mining began to boom, things weren't exactly perfect. And in fact, they were far from it. Mining life defines Centralia from its rough and tumble residents to its seedier side, according to history.com. 
The Molly Maguires were also active in the town in the 1860s, and they were suspected to have committed some incredibly violent acts in the area. Apparently, there'd been a secret society that originated in Ireland and had made its way to these coal mines along with the Irish immigrants. Pennsylvania historian Daryl B. Johnson says that they were implicated in everything from the murder of the town's founder, Alexander Rea, to the death of the area's first priest. Some believed that the Mollies were guilty, while others claimed that the Mollies were framed by owners of the mines who feared that the members of the Mollies and other organizations would organize the mine workers into unions, writes Johnson. Other sources say they murdered Ray and his buggy during a trip between Centralia and Mount Carmel, and that they were also guilty of arson. Yet other sources claim that the priest, Father Daniel Ignatius McDermott, didn't die until 1927, but he was only beaten. Not that that's good, but it's better than death. Local legend has it that he even put a curse on the town after this, saying that one day, only the St. Ignatius Church would remain standing in Centralia. As for the Mollies, many of these immigrants came to America's coal mines from 1847 to 1848. So when the riots in 1862 broke out and 11 mine bosses involved in labor disputes were killed, the Molly Maguires seemed like the obvious culprit. Things only got far more violent in time and as this timeline shows from both sides. In December, 1874, miners wages were cut. And then a couple weeks later, mine watchman Frederick Hesser was murdered while working. In a revenge attack, three Mollies shot a man and later a police officer named Benjamin Yost. A justice of the peace and bartender, Thomas Gautier and Gomer James respectively were also killed. A mine superintendent accused of blacklisting striking miners was shot in the back at work as well. While these actions are horrific and certainly not justifiable, many sources point to discrimination and massive tension as to the cause. One source reads, Irish Catholics were routinely met with discrimination based on both their religion and heritage and often encountered help wanted signs with disclaimers that read Irish need not apply. Accepting the most physically demanding and dangerous mining jobs, the men and their families were forced to live in overcrowded company owned housing, buy goods from company owned shops and visit company owned doctors. In many cases, workers wound up owing their employers at the end of each month. When the Civil War broke out and miners were drafted to join what they perceived to be a rich man's war, they began to rebel. Coffin notices threatening death, allegedly penned by Molly Maguires, were delivered to mining supervisors and scabs who planned to fill their roles during strikes. And as working conditions worsened in the 1870s, the violence escalated. In all, 24 mine foremen and supervisors were assassinated. Now, I can't exactly blame the Mollies for not wanting to be drafted to fight for a country that discriminated against them, even if I don't condone violence. They were absolutely responsible for these deaths, though the issue isn't quite as black and white as it seems. Not to mention the president of the Reading Railroad, Franklin Gowen, served as the chief prosecutor during the Molly's eventual trials, despite his incredibly obvious bias and when their union organizing was impeding on his railroad profits. In 1877, half of the Mollies sentenced to death were hanged, and by the end of the 70s, it seemed the crime had largely been extinguished by force, and Centralia began to go back to its sleepy, quiet self. Not too sleepy though. After all, in 1890, they reached their peak population of 2,761 people. However, this piece lasted less than 30 years before the workers began striking again. It's not as if they'd gotten better pay or labor laws after all. Thankfully in 1900, John Mitchell said to be an able and charismatic young leader of the union led 150,000 miners to strike. They want a modest wage increase. And in 1902, during another aggressive massive strike, they received a 10% wage hike and a nine hour day at 10 hours pay. Centralia and Ashland area miners celebrated their victory April 1st, 1903 with a gala day for labor and a massive parade. 
production soared, and by 1917, it reached its all-time peak. It started to decline as the US entered into World War I, though, as many young men from Centralia volunteered, causing a mine labor shortage. The public, which had been so supportive of the union in 1902, became weary of the constant disruption of supply. And according to my source, by 1925, the year of the last great strike, fuel oil was cutting into the home heating and industrial boiler market. Anthracite production dropped from a post-war peak of 77.6 million tons in 1923 to 64.2 million tons by 1929. The stock market crash that year forced Lehigh Valley Coal Company to close all five of its Centralia area mines, throwing thousands of men out of work. The mines did not reopen for six years. Philadelphia and Reading Blast Colliery stayed open until 1933 when an explosion of mine gas ignited an uncontrollable fire. After flooding the mine to extinguish the blaze, the company decided the sad state of the economy did not justify reopening it. Hundreds more lost their jobs. Just to get by, many Centralia miners turned to bootleg mining and idle mines. Those that owned the mines considered it theft, of course, and company detectives were told to shoot without asking questions if they found miners in an area illegally. Bootleg mining in Centralia could sometimes even be done from the cellars of houses. One of these techniques was pillar robbing. Rooms were often carved out of sloping coal veins and certain numbers of pillars were left behind to help support the roof. A substantial amount of coal was left behind in these pillars. And while it was easy picking to take out the pillars from back to front in a practice called robbing back, these mine roofs would often collapse after pillars were removed. This unfortunately would only complicate things later on. When World War II began, so did the need for coal. The Centralia Council acquired rights for the minerals beneath the town in 1950, when the population was just below 2000. However, in massive part because of pillar robbing, mining engineers said that further mining beneath Centralia was sure to spell disaster. By 1960, the population had dropped to 1,435 and the wreckage of a century of mining was everywhere. That's a quote. Even with that said though, it was said to be a kind town where everyone knew everyone. There was one infamous crime where a young girl, only 13 years old, was killed in 1961, but generally speaking, it was a happy little town. It wasn't until May, 1962, when things took a turn for the worst and the fire began. Apparently, Pennsylvania had enacted a law in 1956, Act 471, to regulate the use of strip mining pits as landfills because of their history in spawning damaging mine fires. Municipalities could use these pits to dump trash, but they had to apply for a permit and consent to inspection on a regular basis. In early 1962, that's what Centralia Council did. They made the strip mine evacuated by Edward Whitney in 1935 into a landfill. New state regulation required closing the old dump nearby, so this new site was founded. It was 300 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 50 feet deep. It would serve Centralia for years if properly tended. However, right away, there were a few issues with this pit mine. George Segaritis, the regional landfill inspector for the State Department of Mines and Mineral Industries liked the pit, but was concerned about several holes in the walls and floor of the pit. Pennsylvania strip mines often slice through old deep mines, and this one was no exception. He told a councilman that the holes would have to be filled with incombustible material. That way, if there was a fire, it would not spread to nearby mines. The councilman arranged to have the holes filled at a March 5th council meeting. He reported that five more holes had been sealed. Segaritis must have found the work acceptable because he arranged for a state permit to fill the landfill. This permit was near a cemetery and every year on Memorial Day, many occupants of Centralia would go to the cemetery to visit loved ones as many of Centralia's men had fought in the nation's wars. 
It seemed like a great idea to clean up the landfill on Memorial Day, except for the fact that it meant their method for cleaning a dump was setting it on fire. Firemen would often set fire to various dumps every spring, stand by, then extinguish the blaze. Hindsight is obviously 2020 here, but if you go, oh, hey, here's an old coal mining pit and we're now going to fill it with trash, then we're going to set the whole thing on fire and then put it out. At the time, they might've been like, yes, that's a great idea because we sealed some arbitrary holes, but obviously as you guys know what's coming up, it didn't work. One fireman at the time, Francis Conclaves, is quoted as saying, every year, Holy Wednesday, we used to call it before Easter, we used to go down and burn the dumps. We had nine of them in town. We used to put them out the same night, rinse them with the fire truck, two or three loads on everyone. We used to disturb the stuff, refuse and all. This was a planned fire and a poorly planned one, but a planned fire nonetheless. It's obvious the council planned this because the assistant fire chief even submitted a bill to council for $6 for fighting the fire in the landfill on May 27th, 1962. Why else would members of a volunteer fire company be paid after all? They did their job, and when most of the paper on the surface of the landfill was gone, the firemen poured water on it until they could no longer see the flames. However, the fire had burned deeper than anyone suspected, and by May 29th, smoke and flames were visible again. This is when the council and those involved in the planning of this fire seemed to realize their mistake and tried to backtrack. The councilman denied that it was the practice of council to have dumps set aflame and other members of council claimed that the fire from the 1930s at Bast Colliery that we mentioned earlier had never truly gone out and must have spread. Yet Joseph Skovac, another member of the Centralia Fire Company doesn't buy that. He said he just can't believe it was the 1933 or 1932, some sources say different dates, that the fire spread to the mines, judging by how deep in the garbage it was little more than a week later we may not be able to definitively prove which fire caused the one that clearly began wreaking havoc and flaring up in June, 1962, but I'm pretty confident in saying it's more likely due to the fire intentionally set on the 27th. It would be a massive, massive coincidence if it just so happened that the 1930 fires took 30 years to spread and finally reached the landfill near the cemetery two days after a different fire had so clearly been lit there. Using common sense, it's not so hard to figure out that yes, the council was responsible, but they do anything to shift the blame. Whether it was publicly saying the fire started in late June or that a heat wave started the blaze, they didn't seem keen on taking responsibility. This fire, unfortunately, wasn't going anywhere either. I mean, it was spreading, but it was stubborn as hell to try and extinguish. Council rented a bulldozer, and according to one of the operators, if you simply pushed aside any of the garbage, the flames would leap up, let alone the distinguishing stench. Sometime in June, the firemen realized that there was a hole at the base of the north wall of the pit, a hole almost 15 feet long and several feet high. One of the holes that the councilman was supposed to be filling with incombustible material. This hole led to a labyrinth of old mines, meaning the council failed to find and close this one hole that the fire absolutely needed to spread. The councilman said he had no idea the hole was there, whereas Segaridis hinted that he did know. There were holes, he said, but you couldn't see how far the coal came up. You couldn't see the hole. I don't know who's more negligent here, Sycharitis for actually putting a stamp of approval on the thing without doing due diligence, or the councilman for not bothering to double down and check his own work and promising the council that holes were filled just willy-nilly. Both of them aren't looking too great here, to be honest. Sycharitis told his boss that the fire was extinguished when it hadn't been, and in fact, the fire was getting worse than ever. Disgusting smells from the burning garbage began spreading and the council wasn't exactly scrambling to put it out. 
Kashner, known as Mooch, was often called by Northumberland County commissioners to organize emergency mine fire pits that he could dig out the burning material with a steam shovel. He was told that such a project would have to go through channels and Kashner said if his proposal was delayed, Centralia was going to have a mine fire on its hands and he wasn't wrong. They had an opportunity to potentially end this quickly and relatively cheaply compared to what it's gonna cost them down the line, but they didn't take it. Not to mention Centralia Council continued to allow dumping in the pit despite the fire that was literally ablaze there. All the while, the mine fire continued to grow, drawing oxygen from within the mines. Many people seem to believe that this mine fire could simply be extinguished by closing off the mine, like putting a lid on a barrel in a trash fire and cutting off the supply of oxygen, but that isn't the case. Maurice Goddard, the secretary of Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Resources in the 70s explained, mine fires are most difficult to extinguish by merely cutting off the oxygen supply. Faults, fissures, and unusual geological conditions often prevalent in anthracite areas are all factors contributing to this problem. Mine fires have been completely flooded for extended periods and when dewatered, the fire soon reappeared. The only certain method of extinguishment is complete excavation of a burning material. This is extremely expensive undertaking. These mines have an area of 484 square miles. Not only would this be expensive, but nearly impossible. As my source, this Fire Underground book explains, mine fires operate by different rules too. As mine fires move through old workings, it damages their stability and coal veins were deep as well as steep, promoting circulation of heat and making it that much worse. There were only two government agencies that would help by this time, the Pennsylvania DMMI, the agency that brushed Kashner off and the US Bureau of Mines. Another source reads, it was decided that the best means of extinguishing the fire was to strip the high wall to the bottom slate of the burning bed until the limits of the fire were reached, excavate the burning material, quench it, and backfill the excavation. The Buck Mountain coal bed had been first and second mined and only a fraction of the original coal remained. It was estimated that the world would require the removal and replacement of 24,000 cubic yards of material at an estimated cost of $30,000. At the meeting, it was stated that approval for Bureau of Mines participation would require about three months. Since there was a need for immediate action, it was recommended that the owner and various lessees should pool their resources and start the work as soon as possible. The lessees stated that they lacked the funds to participate in the project. Mr. Schober, then Deputy Secretary of Mines, recommended to the Secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Mines and Mineral Industries that the Commonwealth undertake this project alone. In order to expedite the work, the Commonwealth assumed the job without financial assistance and solicited bids for contract worth without advertising. On August 22, 1962, Brindy Inc. of Atlas, Pennsylvania was awarded a contract and began excavated the burning material. A total of 53,580 cubic yards of material was excavated before the project was stopped on October 29, 1962, after expending $27,658. On October 23, 1962, the Deputy Secretary of Mines had notified the secretary that the fire had advanced beyond the excavation. Cost of the new project was estimated to be $40,000, almost double. Brindy's plans didn't work to say the least. However, this new project seemed hopeful to Centralia, a flushing project. K&H excavating bid to do the project for only $28,400, but the winter made this new plan fail as well. Water lines froze, reducing their already inadequate supply of water to a trickle and their machines froze. Yet aside from this, the DMMI inspectors worried that the 10,000 cubic yards of flushing refused to let the boreholes be filled completely, allowing fires to jump through cracks in the rock roof. 
The point is the DMMI continually mishandled the situation. The money was running out and options ran out too. The other plans quoted were over $100,000, which back in the 60s and 70s cost a lot more. More projects took place, but ultimately the mine fire grew to a point where it was completely unstoppable. By 1964, Centralia's council didn't even know where the fire had moved to since it was detected in the dump two years before and they were concerned it would happen if the mine fire reached a natural gas pipeline they were planning. It was decided that the pipe would be encased in a protective tube that can withstand temperatures of up to 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit, too hot for any mine fire to burn through. A year later in 1965, Centralia citizens could see an unearthly glow at night over the pit. Drilling was resumed again in May, 1967, five years after it began, but the exploratory drilling showed that the fire reached depths and areas undreamed of years ago. Unfortunately, while this fire continued to burn seemingly unstoppable, it was starting to harm citizens. One source writes, at first, this development seemed more curious than calamitous. Kathy Gadinsky, then 25, recalls harvesting tomatoes at Christmas from her naturally heated garden. Some folks no longer had to shovel snow. When things took an ominous turn, residents began passing out in their houses from carbon monoxide leaking in through their basements. Next, the underground gas tanks at Coddington's Esso gas station near St. Ignatius Church started heating up. Route 61, the main road into the town, dropped eight feet and steam spurted out of cracks in the pavement. But things grew worse and even far more dangerous. As the years went on, the ground beneath the city itself became hotter and hotter, reaching over 900 degrees Fahrenheit in some locations. Smoke poured from sinkholes and gas-filled basements. Residents started to report health problems and homes began to tilt. Even the dead cannot rest in peace, wrote Greg Walter for People in 1981. Graves in the town's two cemeteries are believed to have dropped into the abyss of fire that rages below them. Earlier that year, a 12-year-old boy fell into a sudden sinkhole created by the fire, barely escaping death. The 12-year-old saved himself by clinging up to a tree root until his cousin was able to help pull him up. Gas station owners found that the temperatures of gas in their tanks were 172 degrees, and statewide attention to the fire began to increase and people began moving out. And for the ones that stayed, they were getting sick. Sure, people may have enjoyed not having to shovel their sidewalks in the winter at first, but passing out in their homes from toxic fumes and carbon monoxide poisoning, not so much. Thus began the $42 million federal buyout. Congress bought up every single home in town and by 1990, only 63 people remained. In 2002, the USPS eliminated Centralia's zip code entirely, wiping them off the map. Despite all this, there are a few diehard residents that refuse to leave. Lamar Mervine, Centralia's 89-year-old mayor and his wife are two of them. Of course, those two could die at any time from poison gases, but those that do live here, despite the buildings being condemned, rendering them squatters, are mostly elderly people that simply don't want to leave their homes. One of them is named Lokitis, and he, in a Smithsonian article, is quick to point out that no one has actually died in Centralia. He claims to just ignore the occasional whiff of sulfur that comes his way. Not all of the fires are left to burn. When a blaze threatens buildings or roads, OSM tries to contain it. And often when a new fire is discovered, firefighters may succeed in putting it out. Driving north on Interstate 81 from Wilkes Bar in his pickup truck, OSM mining engineer, David Philbin, pointed out grassy spots where the agency replanted vegetation after a fire had been successfully extinguished. On the outskirts of Carbondale, he showed me his greatest triumph, the former Powderly Mine, where a fire of unknown origin broke out in 1995. The agency spent 5.5 million and seven years blasting and moving rock to carve a C-shaped trench 2,150 feet long. 
70 feet wide and 150 feet deep. Philbin thinks the fire may burn another 20 years behind the trench, but should eventually go out. My finest moment, he grins. I'm the architect of this hole. Some sources estimate that the Centralia fire will burn for about 100 years, so we've got about 40 more left to go. Other sources claim it could burn for as long as 250. Yet life continues on here. And as of 2005, Centralia continues to hold municipal elections. They have a $4,000 budget to cover maintenance costs and Lokitis mows what used to be neighbor's yards to keep things looking neat. He also stenciled the extinct zip code of Centralia 17927 on green park benches around the town. The Smithsonian reads, Mayor Mervine was pictured in Esquire not long ago over a caption reading, I ain't leaving. Wild turkeys, hummingbirds, deer, and rabbits have replaced crammed in row houses. Recently, a black bear ambled down South Troutwine. Since no one owns property, no one pays property taxes, and the parking situation could hardly be improved. City Councilman John Karminski is talking half seriously about buying a few bison, putting them out to pasture, and promoting Centralia as the Yellowstone of the East. To hear some people talk, the place is coming back. In his heart, Lokitis may know better. When Pop, another former resident, was buried next to Lokitis' grandmother in St. Ignatius last year, the grandson selected a headstone of polished jet black granite, a stone resembling top grade anthracite. On the monument, a mason etched portraits of the couple, as well as images of St. Ignatius Church, the entry to the RNL coal tunnel, and the house where Lokitis lives. I wanted a permanent memorial of this place, he said. Steam rises about 100 feet from his home and seeps even closer from the grave just up the hill. But for now, the grass is still green. And it's all just really sad, honestly, to hear about these elderly people clinging to a long gone ghost town and what it used to be. Though tourists and scientists come to this place from time to time, the place is nearly empty. There's a documentary on Centralia called The Town That Was that interviews the current and former residents. And they say that home was just important while the rest of the world was a dark place. People developed a place that was safe in their ancestral home. It has a lot of memories to them and a lot of meaning. I completely understand with anyone that says it's not exactly wise to be there. I mean, they're living on top of an active spreading fire mine that could truly poison and kill them. But for them, it's not about the actual land or the houses, but it's history and they're not ready to let go of it yet. One man in the documentary explains, Pennsylvania's mineral riches built this country. The first cannons from the Revolutionary War came from iron ore and limestone in Pennsylvania's mines. We built the railroads, we built the barbed wire. We rebuilt Europe after two world wars, then industry and the rest of the country sort of moved on and left us with this mess. And Centralia is one part of this tragedy. You can't resurrect the past, a former Centralia resident says, but it's undoubtedly sad. A few people that do live in Centralia now are permitted to live out the rest of their days there, but when they die, their land will be transferred to the state and the town itself will be officially condemned, gone, and virtually non-existent. Maybe in a few hundred years, it will be possible to rebuild there. I've got absolutely no idea. The current residents are forbidden from passing down their property or selling it as well. So once they pass away, the homes are truly gone. Old Route 61 has become known as Graffiti Highway. Some say that every year there's less and less to be seen as the town slowly vanishes, fading away in time. Centralia has since inspired quite a few fictional ghost towns. One source states, in fiction, Centralia has been renamed Limbo, Coal Run, Caldera. Dean Kuntz's short novel, Strange Highways, was inspired by a riveting portrait of the fire by photographer Renee Jacobs, who documented the town when people began moving out. His fictional Centralia is a dramatic post-apocalyptic wasteland full of evildoers, the kind of entry point to the underworld found in Indiana Jones films. In one scene, an explosive packet of toxic gases takes out a church and the protagonist's psychopathic brother, PJ. 
horror writer David Wellington used Centralia in Vampire Zero as the town where vampire fighter Laura Coxton returns as the final showdown in which she dramatically declares, I know there's a hell, I grew up with it under my feet. It's been the setting for meth zombies, bloodlusting ghosts, and monsters of all stripes. Roger Avery also researched Centralia while working on the Silent Hill film. And it's said that the horror video game the movie is based on is genuinely based on Centralia itself too. The town Silent Hill also has dangerous air, an abandoned coal mine with only a few citizens that remain in the town that continue to attend church services, just like in real life. The church that stands isn't St. Ignatius though, the church that the priest promised or cursed would one day be the only one standing, but instead it's the Ukrainian Catholic church called the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Plus that whole church doesn't hold much water anyway because the priest apparently rang the church bell as he announced his curse to the town, but the bell at St. Ignatius wasn't installed until 1874 and he was supposedly attacked in 1869, but okay. Still, the legends and eerie nature around this real life Silent Hill continue and they probably will for some time. As creepy as this place may be, it's a real tragedy what happened here and how the Centralia Council mishandled the entire situation. This fire never needed to happen in the first place if people had checked for holes or properly filled them and frankly, just not set fire on their trash where they were aware it was above a complex lengthy mining system, but they did it anyway and here we are. So with all of that being said, that's where we're going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you all enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you wanna keep in contact with me outside of these episodes, make sure you're clicking on my Linktree link in the description box. It's going to have links for all of my social media, including my Twitter, Instagram, Discord server, and Twitch. So thank you all for making it to another episode. Love you all, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.